Hey, buddy. Yes, Alice? How was your most recent viewing of Rogue One? Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, it was good. Uh, I, I feel a little bit like it's hard to focus on the whole movie right now. Right. As we're recording this episode, it is the middle of June of 2020. Things are a little... Things are a little complicated right now, and so it's it's become difficult to kind of focus on media, right? Yeah, uh, and even though, you know, Rogue Fun, Rogue One, is a <laughs> movie that is important to us, and it has a lot of good things to say, it, uh, I don't know, it, it just sometimes feels like there's so much else going on that even sitting down for two hours to kind of you know, watch this movie again and re-experience it. it it's just hard to do. Um, and so uh, my most recent watch through of the movie really focused on the segment we're covering today. And the rest of it was kind of background noise. Yeah, I I, I did the same thing. I did watch the, the whole film, um, but I found myself thinking a lot about Star Wars in general and its place in our in our culture and I I found myself focusing a lot on like stormtrooper movements and like like police action by the stormtroopers um which uh, just because that's been on my mind and on the mind of the the culture lately yeah and um I think it's a really important conversation to have um and an important conversation to have about media in general about how like police and military and everything is is frameworked in our in our culture yeah um and in american media um but but at the end of the day this episode this podcast is about the film rogue one and it's and we have a very specific focus in this episode a, a 10 minute segment that we're going to be talking about and so we can move away i think a little bit from um from thinking about uh, right right here right now and we can maybe just talk about what we what we see in this in this segment yeah um, as always of course though that like our modern culture influences how we view media and and how media interacts with us and influences us is is super important yeah um but this movie was made in the in early 2016 it was released in december 2016 um, the context that it was produced is different than the context we live in now. Yeah, and a, a lot of Rogue One is about the language and methods of resistance, right? And when action is justified versus inaction. Um, and we talked a lot about that in the last episode. Um, but as we pick up in this episode, we are firmly in action mode. Uh, right, the the plot has decided, or, or rather the characters have decided, that uh, consequences be damned, something must be done, action must be taken, a fight must occur here and now, and so they're on their way to that fight. Uh, and this this segment, this 10 minutes, feels like a long inhale before the 40-minute climax that is the Battle of Scarif. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This this movie is 
is so important and remains so relevant. And the reason why we keep talking about it month after month after month is uh, a lot based in the last episode we just did. And it was a, such an important segment of the film where we talk about about resistance and action and about staying silent even when people around you are encouraging you to stay silent when you want to do something, say something. And um, and Jen Erso and Cassie Nandor and their whole team decide we are going to just go for it. We're going to do what we have to because it's the right thing to do. And uh, and so here we are. We um, This segment that we're going to talk about um, is the... The segment where we, uh, at an hour and 23 minutes into the film, we come out of hyperspace over Scarif. Um, and we're going to end by, uh, at the moment where Cassian Andor says, light them up. We're going to talk about when, when Cassian gives Melshi permission to start the fight properly. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the talking about it as like a big inhale is a, is a really good way to describe it. This is... Our characters getting into position, ready to fight. So yeah. uh, let's just dive right into it. Okay, so uh, the stolen Imperial transport uh, kind of warps in out of hyperspace, and uh, we cut to the inside of the ship. Yes. So we've got K2SO, Bodhi Rook, and Jin Erso in the cockpit coming out of hyperspace and Bodhi Rook kind of slides right back into the role of Imperial pilot. He knows all of what's going to happen next. He knows about the shield gate. He knows about the codes and the pattern of speech he needs to take in order to get in. And Jin lets him do it. She's in charge, but she knows that this is Bodhi's expertise. Yeah. I feel like uh, Bodhi Rook doesn't get a lot of credit when we're talking about best pilots in Star Wars, <laughs> um, but he is certainly the best stealth pilot in Star Wars. He knows how to fly casual, uh, and that's what he does here. <laughs> he totally uh, knows how to fly casual. That's exactly right, because he knows he knows the words to say. He knows how to just sail on in without anybody taking note of it. Yeah, and even though this is clearly an out-of-the-ordinary thing, like, here's this ship that was supposed to go to a recently destroyed base. I mean, that's their cover story, right? Uh, that they were redirected from Edu. Um, and that's some cause. That's a cause for some suspicion, right? That this ship was somewhere that was supposedly blown up or was on the way there, and they got redirected and nobody told Scarif. Um, is is a little weird, but Bodhi just kind of lets that whole suspicion like slide off of the uh, Imperial Guards' uh, kind of minds. He's like, "Oh yeah, sorry about that. You know, we were redirected, transmitting code now, and it, it just works because it works. He, yeah. he because he is calm because he has K two S O to back him up, and and we don't say enough about K two S O and his stealth abilities, but right here K two does a transmitting transmitting he like goes into like a like a very uh robotic for lack of a better term yeah um like tone of voice where uh and and it's really all about the eye contact that Bodhi and K2 make between each other when Bodhi is 
saying, you know, oh, we're uh, transmitting now. And then looks at K2, who makes eye contact with him and goes, transmitting now. You know, they they are communicating seamlessly. Like, they have both accessed this, like, pre-reprogrammed part of themselves. Yeah, and, and the picture of them side by side, both of them reprogrammed uh, in, a, in a sense. Um, and now, you know, fully using that reprogramming uh, to to kind of work within the system uh, to destroy the system is is brilliant. It's it's a brilliant moment uh, to put them side by side. I mean, you could have put Cassian in the cockpit here, um, but you really couldn't have, right? Like, it just doesn't work quite as well. Right. We know that Cassian is capable of subterfuge and and capable of sneaking around even though like on the ring of Catherine when he's like looking over his shoulder all the time like <laughs> like it didn't seem to be initially like a very good uh, spy moment but we know that he's capable of that right but uh, and, not here yeah and something else i'd like to talk about is that this uh this moment uh with the whole crew on a ship uh lots of shots of the cockpit lots of the shots of like uh, switching uh, switches up and down and uh, things like that and transmitting codes to get to an Imperial base. Uh, this looks a lot like uh, Return of the Jedi when they're on that stolen Imperial shuttle landing on Endor. Absolutely. Uh, except here it's not a setup. And also here uh, we don't have Han Solo just about ruining everything. <laughs> No, absolutely. And in Return of the Jedi, what what really ruins them uh, sneaking onto the uh, forest moon of Endor is that Darth Vader senses Luke's presence, right? Right. They're both so powerful with the force that uh, that they can't fool each other. They know right. where each other is. Um, here, though, we have Jyn Erso making a prayer, grasping her kyber crystal. As they, as they pass through before they get their clearance, she grasps her kyber crystal and she closes her eyes and she prays she begs she her eyes are screwed up tight and she holds that crystal tight in her fist and and just hopes for the force to be on her side and luckily for Jin, uh in a way that was unlucky for luke <laughs> um nobody is on the other side to to receive that that she just slides through yeah or the that's... force looks after her and lets her slide through that's interesting that we're not heading into a magical fortress protected by a space wizard uh, <laughs> we're heading into a magical fortress that will soon be inhabited by a space middle manager um he's not there yet <laughs> so <laughs> no so he's there's, on his way yeah there there really is like you said like no one on the other side with like a will in the force you know what i mean uh yeah. there's there's no there's no force representation on the other side of this conflict uh and so with Jin and perhaps with, uh, oh man, uh, Chirrut and Baze, uh, there's, there's like that, like the will of the force is stronger with them. And it feels like it gives them an advantage. It also feels like they're not in command. They are asking. Uh, yes. And that is a difference. Exactly. Yes, they are asking for permission. They're asking the Force. And you know, sure, it's down there doing exactly the same thing. I'm one of the Force and the Force is with me, like saying, let's just get on the ground. Yeah. And we can take it from there. 
but this is our biggest obstacle on the way is a full planet-wide force field which seems wild i don't know why all planets (laughs) don't have this (laughs) all planets should have planet-wide shielding and here's my question alice i i this is such a nitpick but if you had a planet-wide shield could you say survive a blast from the death star I I don't think so. I don't I feel think like... that's how it works, but I think they're supposed they're designed to resist like orbital bombardment. Right. Well, they can withstand um, you know, plasma blasts and stuff from X-wings and from uh U-wings and B-wings and you know, everybody that flies on all, in. All those wings. All, all the wings that are that are flying in the Battle of Scarf successfully the shield gate holds. Um I don't think that they could survive a Death Star. I think the Death Star has to be designed to cut through that. Like, yeah. if the Imperials have a planet-wide shield, they would design a weapon that could beat their own planet-wide shield, right? Just in case one of their enemies has one, too. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's that's a good take. I agree with you there. Uh, I also don't know why all planets don't have a planet-wide shield. <laughs> They should. It would uh, change the game entirely. But I yeah. guess that maybe it's just, maybe the Imperials just invented it. It I must don't be know. really expensive because, I, like, why doesn't the Death Star have a shield that good? I mean, yes! it's a moon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a moon. It's smaller than the planet Scarif. They it should, should have, have a shield that like things can't go through. <laughs> maybe it has something to do with how like mobile the Death Star is. I don't. I don't know. Like, yeah. it's. Uh, it's a a fun little plot device of a planet wide shield that gives us such amazing plot moments, like when the disabled star destroyer crashes into it. And yes. obviously, we'll get there in a couple episodes. Um, right. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely like a like a fun little piece of Star Wars that they invented for this movie, and that's okay. Yeah. Like Star Wars has has a consistency problem and that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> you know, that's that's part of what we love about Star Wars. And uh, this is not inconsistent with again the battle above Endor uh and having planet-wide shielding and a shield generator that needs to be taken down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly. So, so this is just pure Star Wars. And that's for me the like big thing about this 10 minute segment is that we are having some classic star wars hijinks this whole time exactly we said last episode that like when Jin urso gets to make her big old speech to the council and she and cassian get to team up to grab a team to to go fight 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 that Jin urso has become has like worked her way into being a true star wars protagonist right like like and by becoming that true Star Wars protagonist in the last segment, in, the, in all of the bits on Yavin, she now gets to head up a team that gets to get into the Star Wars hijinks. Like the, <laughs> and she's earned it. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, so moving on from... Uh, from from this, uh, Jin or so leaves the cockpit. They've they've made it through. They get their clearance. Bodhi's happy. Everybody's ecstatic. Jin smiles. Cassian smiles. Every, right. Everybody gets to grin their faces off. And uh, Jin, uh, uh, ship alert, uh, on her way out of the cockpit, <laughs> um, grabs 
Cassian's arm and they share this like super sweet, beautiful little smile on her way out of the of the room. It's so good. It's yeah. so pretty. And it, it's what's great about it is that it's uh, it's very kinetic. Like it's it's in motion. They don't yes. stop and like gaze longingly into each other's eyes. <laughs> it's this like little grab and an exchange and that's it. They need to keep going. Like yes. there is business to attend to, but that confidence in each other is restored. Uh, and I think affection is bubbling through. Um, and that's that's a wonderful little moment. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so she grabs grabs his arm. They look into each other's eyes. She leaves, and he like kind of rejoices for a second. Yeah. He like smiles a little harder and grabs the back of the seat. Like I, I I think all of the the hurt that they have exchanged back and forth over the course of the this film, we know that like. We established, we we said at, um, during her speech to the council that when she uses his words, rebellions are built on hope, that um, that that's the moment that she forgives him. Um, I think here is where she 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 has forgiven him. And now she's saying, OK, like we're we're back in it. We're a team again. Remember how we fought side by side on Jetta. Remember how trust goes both ways. Like we're we're back to it. Yeah. And it's sweet. It's cute. And I ship it. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great about it is that uh, at the end of the movie, they do live happily ever after. Yes, uh, of course. And, and start a small farm somewhere where they raise banthas. Um, yeah. Which or, is just or great. something cute. They just, yeah, everything is fine. <laughs> everything fact, is fine for them. <laughs> this is the point where if you're watching the movie for the first time, you can leave it at the end of this segment, the light them up and be like, wow, they won. Wow. Wow, they did it. They caused a bunch of explosions so and cool. won. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> no one died. And that's fine. <laughs> um, but actually, no. But actually, no. And, <laughs> and, and I think the movies. Get, uh, things are going to get dark from, from here on out. This yeah. Is the, and. I think the movie's doing some good work here uh, to prepare us, the audience, for that oncoming darkness. Yes, and I think a big step towards that, towards that preparation, is when Jin gets down the stairs, Cassian gets down the stairs, they say, hey, we're coming in, and the first thing that Jin says is referencing her good old friend and father figure, Saw Gerrera. Saw Gerrera used to say one fighter with a sharp stick, nothing left to lose can take the day. Who we just watched just a few minutes ago we watched him die and i think that's uh that and a, a few other things that that they do over this segment is like yeah like preparation hey everybody here are your foreshadowing here's your your moment your sad songs where you're gonna have to say goodbye to a lot of these people they're not they're not ready they're ready to die they're like they've they've gone on this segment and Jin gives gets to give this big speech about um one man with the sharp stick can take the day, right? This is this is Jin's big speech to her team where she says that at the end of it it could come down to just one of us and we take the chances and the next chance and the next chance and the next until we win or we die. And that is a huge foreshadowing to what's about to happen because that's exactly what they do. They fight and they fight and they fight until they absolutely cannot fight anymore. 
Yeah, this is uh, almost a prediction for the entire final 40 minutes of the film, is that it's one chance after another desperately seeking some kind of victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, sacrifices along the way are assured, like they're going to happen. And I think that's why, yeah, like you said, the the idea of one fighter with a sharp stick, like one of us left, can still win um, is is such an important thing to impart on the cast and the audience. Like, as long as there's still somebody fighting this fight, they can still win it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it, so it's not a, a hopeless message. It's just a message that acknowledges the, the coming sacrifices um, and that also acknowledges the odds uh, as Cassian is about to do, uh, when he says, make 10 men feel like 100. Make 10 men feel like 100. Right. Yes. He's saying, we need more people for, for an operation like this, actually. <laughs> um, but, you know, what we have is this, and we need to do what we can with it. Yes. Yes. Make 10 men feel like 100 is almost exactly to what, like, we know sagrera has been up to. This um, and the rebels and the the whole the whole movement has been about we are smaller than them. They are an empire. They're huge. They're massive. They've got all this tech. They've got planet wide shields, for goodness sake. Um, But we are we are small and we are mighty and uh, our passion and our drive and our fierceness will be able to take the day. And I I find it really interesting that. that Jin starts with referencing referencing Sagrera and Cassian says make ten men feel like a hundred. This vibe, this idea of the like rogue force is really what Sagrera was about from the beginning. Uh, even though the rebellion is trying to like get senators and make like a legitimate pass at rebellion. Right. Um, uh, that- this is this is directly invoking the uh, more extreme side of this movement, which I, I also think like. Jin, I have some notes. Uh, <laughs> these guys might not like anything about Saw. Uh, no. They may they may be firmly in the camp that Saw was too extreme. Exactly. We know Mon Mothma thought that Saw was too extreme, and maybe these people do too. Um, but they're also the kind of people to volunteer to follow Cassie and Andor and Jin are so into certain death, right? Like Cassie and Andor knew who to call. He knew Melshi would come. He knew Pal would come. He knew these these guys would come and back them up because he knows who and and what kind of person is the person to follow um, to follow this tactic. Who's willing to say I've done horrible things for the rebellion? They call Sagarera a terrorist. Maybe I am too, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so that's why this team works. And and so they channel Sagarera and they they use his tactics and they use Jin's knowledge and know-how. They use Cassian's saboteur. You know, they're saboteurs, right? Like, Cassian says that. So... Jin, Cassian, they're giving this speech and they're giving everybody orders. I just think I find it really interesting that uh, Jin Erso is sitting here channeling uh, Saw Gerrera when um, when it's Galen Erso is why she why she's there, right? Like she's there for for Galen is her is her father, 
but it's Sagrera, her other father, that she is channeling here in this moment. Yeah, I, I mean, like, Galen, Galen sent her into this, but I think Sa is informing how she's dealing with it. Exactly. Uh, which is which is much like, you know, their roles in Jin's life. Like, Galen brought her into this world, or was at least part of it. Uh, Sa taught her how to deal with this world. Yes. Um, and I, I, I know we were a little critical of Jin bringing up Sa just a second ago, um, <laughs> but... You know she she does care about Saw. She saw she saw Saw at <laughs> his last moment at perhaps his most noble, um, his most like pure self, uh, no longer relying on you know his breathing machine, uh, no longer letting this fight tear him up, and instead just being like, we've got to save the rebellion, we've got to save the dream, Jin, you've got to do this. Uh, and I feel like this is this is Jin making good on that inspiration. Yes. This Jin is bringing that energy, save the rebellion, save the dream, like die for the rebellion, die for the dream. She's bringing that energy into this space. And it's uh, it's not something maybe that Galen or so would have done. Galen or so stands there and sabotages from the inside and lives and survives and fights no matter what. Well, Galen, Galen was never one man with a sharp stick. Uh, no. Galen was one man who was bad at lying um, <laughs> and and a smart guy. And he he knows that that's not what he brings to the table. And I think that's what Saw uh, never really got about the rebellion, right? Like, in, in his life, Saw saw <laughs> the rebellion as something that needed to be actively participated in and fought inside of. Yes. Uh, Galen sees another path, one of internal sabotage uh, from within the Empire. Uh, Jin is trying to navigate those two ideologies. And like just like in the council room scene, there's a whole other way of seeing this rebellion, which is, uh, like you said, the senators and the dignitaries and the, the legitimacy. And yes. Jin has to walk in all of those worlds to make this thing work. Yes, exactly. She she knows, everybody knows that you have to have all of it. We talked about this last episode. You have to have both kinds of people in order to fight a rebellion, in order to change things. You've got to have the revolutionaries on the ground, but you've got to have the dignitaries and the speeches and the, the fancy stuff on the inside. Yeah. Because without both, you, you're lost. You're either just all talk or you're terrorists right yep. like that yeah. or you know they call saw a terrorist and well, and that's and that's why you need both saw was never going to establish a new republic like saw was going to burn down the pocket of the empire he was closest to whenever he did anything yes and that's that's not sustainable and i think what's great about Jin here is that she's using the ideas of saw uh, to make a very uh, kind of Bail Organa, Mon Mothma type speech um, and then pull off a Galen Urso caper uh, from, within, <laughs> from, from within, within the yeah. Empire. Disguise uh, so... yourself, put on a costume, walk in in plain sight. Yeah, that's Galen. Yeah. But then when they say by the end of this segment, when they say light him up, that's it. That's 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 when Saw takes over. Yeah. And so... so... 
you know, Jin with those three backgrounds, those three influences and pressures on her, uh, is able to channel all of the effective parts to make this whole thing work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, there is one more member of the Rogue One crew who doesn't have a job yet. <laughs> Bodhi Rook? Yeah. Cargo pilot local boy? Yeah, yeah. What, what's he going to do when everybody's out there fighting and dying on well, the beaches of... Uh... Well, mom and dad are going to tell him right now. <laughs> so Jin and Cassie turn around and go to, when Bodhi says, uh, what should I do? And, and Jin and Cassie turn around and they look exactly like a mom and dad talking to their kid. The like eyes wide, like hope on their faces. You keep the engine running. You're our yeah. only way out of here. What should I do? Keep the engine running. You're the only way out of here. Yeah, and and I love I, they're even at like different heights. Um yes. And and they're just they, they they like put a hand on his shoulder and they're like, "Hey, pal. Hey, bud. <laughs> keep the engine running, cause we're really gonna get out of this. We're and gonna I think, get out of here, and I think, you're okay, it. One, yes, that is the best job for Bodhi to do. Like he is the pilot. Uh, two, I feel like there's a softness with how they tell Bodhi this this part of what's going to happen because they kind of recognize that Bodhi is on thin ice mentally speaking yes um and it kind of kind of needs to feel like things are going to be okay in order to do this I not to say that Bodhi is less brave or that he's less ready to die but I think you know that moment of hope uh, kind of comforts everybody too, right? That there's somebody waiting to bring them home. Yes. Bodhi is that like heart of we're going to get out of here or if we're going to get out of here, you're the one that's going to do that for us. Here's yeah. a very important job and a very special thing that only you can do. You got us in, you're going to get us out. It's sweet. It's really sweet. Um, it's bleak though. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, and knowing the end of the film, it becomes even bleaker. Right. Uh, but Bodhi has his moments to be heroic um, and he takes them. And that I also find a lot of gratification in. Yes. Like, you know, we've seen him slide back into his Imperial pilot role. We know that he's fully a rebel now. And we'll also see him be like a, a full on hero. Well, we get uh, to see him see him in, in just a second doing doing something heroic and lying for for himself right <laughs> yeah um because after they land and the imperial team comes on and uh, prepare for inspection and all of that they walk in and bodhi's the one to greet him yeah that's the very next for thing a manifest that right oh uh, it's a it's just down there and he's a good liar He's pulling it off. He's got the the uh, flight suit. He's got the goggles and everything. He's playing the part. Yeah. He's learning to lie. He's uh, channeling Galen Erso here. <laughs> yeah, and and I gotta say that stealing Imperial uniforms is like one of my favorite <laughs> Star Wars tropes. So Star Wars. Um, and this is exactly the Millennium Falcon pulling into the Death Star, like right into the Hornet's Nest, right into the Lion's Den, right into the Shark's place where sharks live um you know here we are at, at the center of danger 
and there's still time for like wacky fun like <laughs> and we don't even see the stormtroopers get knocked out we just see them being dragged off and uh you know cassian and Jin putting on their somehow perfectly fitting uniforms yes oh gosh are they perfectly fitting <laughs> wow do they look good in those uniforms <laughs> so sharp so sharp uh Jin is just rocking that black uniform with the uh with the like light uh sticks yeah i guess she's a uh she's a like a scanner uh is the uniform that she took like it's the um the 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 character that like waved them in like it's um it's like part of like a aircraft um uh like directing where you wave the 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 orange lights to to say oh land here land here land here yeah and uh and then that character like squats down and like shields themselves against the dust kicked up by the um by the ship when it lands uh and then Jin just slides right into that uniform looks great (laughs) looks so good (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know, speaking of uniforms, one thing I'd like to talk about before we leave uh, Rogue One, the ship, behind uh, is that these rebels, uh, these uh, rebel expendables, no other rebel fighter in all of the other movies looks like these guys. No. They, they have a really unique look. It, it looks a lot closer to modern... 1970s american military it looks like a vietnam outfit i was just about to say when they start taking the field and they start running through the trees to set their charges this is the vietnam war like this this is when it when star wars has traditionally been world war ii metaphors this is the moment where this movie starts becoming a vietnam metaphor yeah and and the the things that we'll see later, like including air cavalry backup and you know troops jumping out of helicopters and palm stuff like trees that. on fire in a line. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really evocative of a Vietnam War film, uh, and the look on these guys. I don't know. It, it just stood out to me on this rewatch. I was like, you know, other rebels are wearing uh, dumb helmets, like on the Tantive Four. Or they're wearing, you know, orange jumpsuits, flight suits, so that they can fly in an X-Wing like we see in A New Hope. Or they're wearing, like, kind of camouflage, but, like, space camouflage on Endor. (laughs) Or they're wearing, like, snow outfits because they're on Hoth. But we never see, like, jungle fighting, you know, big bucket helmets uh, and, and, like, guns that are strapped to everybody's backs and stuff. We don't see that in other Rebels. And I think... It's really important to establish that, uh, again, these guys are visually different because they're different as far as a fighting unit of rebels go. Yeah. Uh, they're unofficial. They're gritty. They're uh, they're on the raggedy edge. And I love that design choice for them. Absolutely. It's really good. It's very, uh, like, visceral. You get, you get these people just by looking at them. The production design of this movie is so cool. It's so good all the time. <laughs> so good this is the part of the of the movie where these scenes start to get really choppy uh we start to spend only like 10 to 15 seconds with each little group for the rest of this 10 minute segment um starting with orson krennic uh flying in to boss some people around Uh, we only spend a few seconds with Orson Krennic, who stomps in, white cape and all, and tells General Ramda that he needs to see everything that Galen Erso has ever said or done. All of them? <laughs> yes, all of them. <laughs> Galen Erso, I want to 
every dispatch, every transmission he has ever sent called up for inspection. started <laughs> everyone he's, uh it's it's funny uh it's, the way the way everything starts to get cut together like this yes and you could you could really get the sense from krennic and the way he's acting like he doesn't get the desperation of this moment at all because he's completely disconnected from it no he's ready to go through every single little teeny tiny piece of correspondence that galen or so has ever done and again lanurso has been working for the empire for like 10 years or more right and so so krennic's like he's angry and he's he's annoyed yes all of them get started you know he's like grumpy but he's not desperate yet (laughs) i don't i don't know if uh krennic gets desperate until he's like shot multiple times i think he doesn't Um, No, he gets a little desperate when he has to deploy the garrison like are you blind (laughs) but that's not gonna that's gonna happen in in a a few minutes after the segment we'll get to that next episode yeah um but yeah krennic at this moment is like he's not concerned that there might be rebels on scarif or even that they might be coming soon he just wants to get to the bottom of Galen Urso's business. Yeah, uh, and, you could you could imagine another scenario where this Rogue One mission doesn't happen, and Krennic just goes about his normal Imperial business, uh, trying to undermine uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, right? For for another three movies worth of time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, because to him, um, if if something hasn't happened now. But or like if something isn't happening right this minute, it's not going to happen yet. Right. Um. I'm going to instead take my bureaucratic time, sp- use my bureaucracy lifestyle to go through everything Galen Erson's ever said in order to prove that his treachery was real, and maybe even to prove that his death was justified. Yeah. It could even be that like, I had all of these engineers killed, and I had, you know, uh, Galen Erso looked at. Uh, one, because Tarkin was threatening me and, and like, trying to undermine me, but also um, for my own gain. And now we need to find a reason to justify that. You know, I never really thought about it like that. Like, killing all of those Imperial engineers, like, the the sheer resources that that moment costs the right? Empire. That's the kind of thing that only Vader can get away with. Right. <laughs> yeah. like, just he can, just he can indiscriminately just killing. He wants. But, but Krennic is not of a high enough authority to order the destruction of an entire research unit. It would have been that we know much more effective to jail them. Exactly. Um, and, and to interrogate secrets out of them or to isolate them. And or to put just, them somewhere where they can't reach the rebellion or whatever. Exactly. Or to just go with his gut because he knew it was Galen Urso who did it. He knew it right. wasn't those but guys. But he had to make a statement. No, he had to write a manifesto. And that's, that's <laughs> Krennic's entire problem. Exactly. Is that he does things all the way all the time and then tries to clean it up. Uh, and with now, now he's about to do it again. Get all of Galen Urso's communiques. Right. Not relevant ones, not ones over the last year, not, you know, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Orson Krennic is a all or nothing kind of guy. It's uh, pretty cool. He's pretty <laughs> It makes cool. him compelling for sure. It definitely makes him compelling and like relatable. Or, or like 
if not relatable, then like understandable. You're like, right. I, I know this man. I know people like this man. That's what I feel like we've talked about this before, but like Orson Krennic is such a compelling and interesting villain, not because he's magic like Darth Vader or, or uh, Palpatine, you know, but because he is everyone has had a manager like this guy. Everybody has worked for somebody who is just so, so anal retentive and so caught up in his own bureaucracy that he, if things aren't done his way, then they're done bad, you know? And yeah. and he wants all the credit for all the work everybody else has done. And, and so for those of us who have worked for people like this or who know people who are, who act like this, he becomes this really interesting, compelling and like fun villain where we're and and that kind of villain becomes somebody you not necessarily want to root for but there's a reason why Krennic has a big fan base we know lots of them on Twitter <laughs> yeah people who are like really into Krennic because they get him they like understand him and where he's coming from yeah I, I would I would hesitate to use the word sympathetic but you feel you feel like you said like you understand him and you feel along with him you can watch his thought processes part of what makes vader a compelling villain is how inscrutable he is you can't get a read on him right yes uh mostly because of the mask also because of the kind of monotone voice um krennic is emotional and human and uh has insecurities we hate him for all of the things he does but we understand him. Exactly. And uh, I think that that is a deepening of uh, Star Wars villainy that we don't often get in the films. I think in the TV shows we get uh, complicated villains. Yes. Um, but, like, in the films, you know, Palpatine, he's also inscrutable. Like, what is his plan? Like, <laughs> his plan is whatever, right? His plan is whatever it takes to make him just so powerful, I guess. So much power. Uh, I, don't, I don't I don't relate to that necessarily. No. Um, but I relate to, to uh, not like I'm, oh, I relate to him because I'm just like him. But like, no. I relate and understand what Krennic is up to. I even relate and understand yeah. what like Ben Solo is up to. You know, you, you, right. there, there are characters that you, that you read and you're like, I can see what happened to you, why you became bad, or, like, what pushed you to this place. Right. And, yeah, Krennic is a really good example of that. So, uh, we, we cut back to, uh, Rogue One, the ship, and the unit, uh, that <laughs> kind of is known as Rogue One. Right. Uh, and they are exiting the ship. They're getting ready. They're they're doing their uh, tactical combat rolls, rolling out of the ship. They're uh, they are prepping. They are ready. They've done this before. Um, yeah. But we get just maybe maybe one of the sweetest things that happens in the whole in the whole film, and it's the the moment where Bay's mouth. Well, Jin stops at Chirrut, touches him. They smile. It's cute but silent. And then Bay's claps his hand on Jin's shoulder and says. Good luck, little sister. Good luck, little sister. Oh, man. Oh, man. Just rips my heart apart. This is the last <sighs> time that Jin or so is going to talk to these men. And it is the sweetest, kindest thing that you can say to a person. It's yeah. so 
it's so earnest and it's so kind. Baze Malvis has spent this whole movie being gruff and being kind of rude and shooting people and and being kind to cheer it, um, but also teasing him and and calling him a fool and stuff like that. Um, but in this moment, he looks at little Jin, who is much smaller than him, and looking up at her at him with these you know big beautiful eyes, and says, "Good luck, little sister." Man, and the the whole scene is really warm and earnest actually like everybody's checking everybody else's gear they're patting each other on the back they're excited that they've made landfall and there's camaraderie here yes uh this separates them from the empire and their cold effectiveness uh even further right yes uh these guys are all gonna go fight and die uh nobody makes it out of this alive and they know that they, they've come to terms with that. There's still room in their hearts, though, to know each other. Yes. Uh, and, and fight for each other. Yes. And Bay is making this big, I guess it's actually just a little moment, but making this little moment for Jin uh, is showing her that this is, like, right and good and warm and that they're a family Yes. And that it matters that we, they know each other. Yes. We came along with this and we are doing this not just because we felt like it, but because you're family and we're standing at your side and because because we look out for each other. It's it it makes their connection bigger and deeper than just, oh, you wanna fight? I wanna fight. Let's fight, you know? Fight? fight yeah fight we fight <laughs> it's different it becomes intimate and and sweet and i just, wow that is one of the most one of the most special moments of this whole movie and it's so quick and it's so small oh oh i love it i love it so much <laughs> it's a family the found family trope and it's a it's a star warsy trope but it's one of my favorite tropes in all of media this idea that that the people around you that you choose to be your family, the people that you choose as the most important people of your of your life, is as like more important than the family you're born into, or more important, or just as important as the people who raised you and shaping you and molding you and turning you into the person that you are, and like the beliefs that you hold dear, is so. It's really important to um, to people who grew up in non-traditional families or people who lost their traditional families really early. It's something that I hear all the time on Star Wars Twitter, people talking about how, how Star Wars has made them feel comfortable with the idea of being adopted or, um, or uh, disowning their, their, you know, blood family and turning towards a found family of choosing your identity and choosing your last name or choosing the the lifestyle that you feel most comfortable and most at home in is something that Star Wars does really well and something that aspire, it has inspired uh, countless people. Um, yeah. And I, I, I mean, like, like I personally it, it feel inspired by that. And it's something that um, again, this is not again. This is not a, a Rise of Skywalker podcast, but it <laughs> is yet. something that that I connected a lot with the um, the you know the Rise of Skywalker, the idea of choosing your 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 name, choosing to be a Skywalker, or choosing the family 
that you identify with or, you know, learning about, uh, you know, parts of your family that you don't agree with and deciding instead what matters to you is something that is is so so prevalent in star wars and in the star wars media at jedi councils and like the jedi who who surrender all earthly attachments but call each other family and call you know and and become brothers and sisters in in this order clones that call each other brothers you know it's it's so important to this narrative and yeah i just love it yeah and and something you're you're kind of approaching uh, is that there's so many different levels of found family versus uh, blood family or uh, like how characters choose to engage in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having having that spectrum of choice uh, where, for example, for Jyn Erso, uh, daughter of uh, Galen and Lyra, uh that that family fa- family connection is still very important to her yes just because she doesn't have it anymore um you know in this life uh doesn't mean it's gone it also doesn't make the fact that she's got a new found family less important to her yes exactly and i think i think like having having that connection and not being like i disown everything about my heritage this is my family now being the only thing that star wars t- communicates with found families yes is really important exactly exactly the family that is gone is still your your family if you want them to be yes yes because Jin urso is sitting here channeling saw Gerrera, but she's fighting for galen who she's just lost and her big character moment at the end of this film where she acknowledges where she came from and why that's important to her is such an important journey that she goes on. And it's uh, it's really resonant through this whole film. Um, yeah, found family is not the only theme here, um, but it is a big one. Yeah, it's, it's still really massively important and drives these characters forward. Uh, as they dive into danger... Mm-hmm. Uh, dive right into it just head first like lots of like you said combat rolls lots of uh crawling on bellies uh <laughs> stealth stick kills uh tasers <laughs> lots of lots of fun uh non-lethals uh and and stealthily moving yes. um meanwhile uh <laughs> we have we have our our golden trio here yes our, our main pro tags Jin, Cassian, and K2SO. Yes. So yes. here is, I made a note here in this, uh, in this document that we're sharing while talking about this, this episode, um, that we have three like core groups that are running around here. Um, Krennic and his group, K2SO and company is what I've named them. Um, and Melshi and company is what I've named uh, the K2 other group. K2 and the SOs. K2 and the SOs. <laughs> That's a good band name. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got three groups here that are running around, three like core uh, teams that we see, and we jump very quickly between the three for the rest of the segment. Um, so, so when we talk about the rest of the segment, the the last like like three or four minutes of this uh, of the segment, we're going to to maybe not necessarily go in chronological what is happening on screen order. Um, because it's really fast. 
Yeah. It's really fast, and these scenes continue on each other. And um, even when it, it breaks away from the scene and then comes back to it, um, uh, it's a it's a really excellent film technique, like uh, like cinematography editing technique, where there the the scenes become faster and faster and faster between cuts, kind of building to a climax, which ends, which is what's going to end our segment here. Right, um, and of course the the speed of the cuts is adding to the tension, but also is aiding the the movie in like moving along really quickly yes. like we're, we're actually gonna not see some important stuff um and i think that's interesting because you know the the golden rule of film is show don't tell yes um but we are going to be shown uh the aftermath of a lot of things we're going to be shown the beginning of a lot of things uh and we're not going to see a lot of middle uh <laughs> we're, we're just not going to see a lot of um like real action right um we're gonna we're gonna see the moments between where characters have a, a second to breathe and talk to each other, um, uh, or not, or we're just gonna see action. <laughs> right, we watch them plant like two, uh, like two explosives, but yeah. we realize in a in a few minutes we're gonna realize that like a bunch of explosions go off, um, and so we we don't need to see each and every single one. We don't need to see how the group. Um, talks to each other and then spreads out over the over all of the little islands around Scarif. We don't need well, that. Well, Alice, unless I find out the story of how uh, <laughs> explosive charge number six was planted, I actually <laughs> don't enjoy the film. Uh, so I actually had to go to Wikipedia, uh, the free online encyclopedia about Star Wars Nash. that anybody can edit. Uh -huh. uh, and I looked it up and it says here that uh, actually uh, Chewbacca was there. <laughs> And oh, he planted really? uh, explosive charge number six. Oh, really? Yeah. Very good. Oh, yeah. so excellent. And absolutely canon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're watching uh, everybody except Chewbacca go around and planting explosion, uh, explosives and combat rolling their, their little hearts out. Um, and we K2SO and Cassian and Jyn Erso... Uh, finally make it to the tower. They ride that, that little tram, and they make it to the tower, and when the door closes in front of them, K2SO gets to say, I've got a bad feeling about a um, One of the very big, very pretty classic Star Wars lines. Except he gets cut off mid-line, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so uh, good. It's, it's such a C-3PO moment, uh, <laughs> but also K2... K2 is saying, I've got a bad feeling about this, which is actually kind of more a Han Solo, like Obi-Wan Kenobi sort of a thing to say. Everybody, uh, in... somebody gets to say it once per film. That's like, right. a, like a thing that happens in all nine saga films, right? Right. Somebody says, I've got a bad feeling about this. Right. And uh, even in Star Tours, uh, the original, uh, Captain Rex says it. So yes. that's fun. That's one of our uh, specialties. Now, I've got a bad feeling about this is a great line because it precedes disaster. <laughs> uh, not letting K2 finish it is a great move because it seems to kind of mitigate the effects of the line. Like, if you don't say it, then maybe the bad thing won't happen. The other thing is, I it's so strange. K2 is a tactical droid 
uh, he thinks about the odds of things. Yes. And C-3PO is known for his role as the uh, comic relief droid that knows the odds of things. Yes. But K-2 here is using his feelings, not his calculations. So he could say, you know, our odds of completing the mission at this point are, and he will actually say something like that soon. But yes. here he's saying, I've got a bad feeling about this, which I think actually kind of ties into something you wanted to talk about with K2SO. Yes. Which is, K2 is so out of his comfort zone right now. And we don't typically think about droids and their feelings. But I feel like this line uh, calls attention to that. No, uh, it absolutely does. And just the, the very next thing kind of that happens, uh, intercut with various scenes of rebels planting explosives and stuff, is that um, K2SO... Uh, both has a bad feeling about this and then is asked to um, to get, grab a map um, and is, is said, is told, you know what to do. We need a map. Well, I'm sure there's one just lying about. You know what you have to do. Cassian says, you know what to do. You know, we need a map. You know what to do. Um, and K2SO, for the next few minutes of this, uh, of his time on on screen... Um, has a bad feeling about this, um, walks through and past another um, uh, KX unit, and then grabs a different KX unit and wipes its memory and steals a, a map of the base from it. Um, this is a huge moment for K2SO and the point where we here at Rogue Fun are going to say droids rights. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like we don't, we don't care enough about the droids in these movies, and it's really gross yeah what k2 was forced to do here um it doesn't feel good to watch uh like to have that shot of him with his like arm spike in the back of a head of another kx unit yeah it feels um, really intimate and really like invasive yeah it's gross it's weird and you know that k2 doesn't want to do it right yeah like, cassian has to tell him like specific because like, when cassian's like we need do. a map and K2's like, oh, I'm sure we can just find one lying around. <laughs> um, it's He's deflecting there with humor and sarcasm because he does not want to do it. And Cassian right. in his very serious voice is, you know what to do. You know, yeah. like, and, and yeah, K2SO doesn't want to. He doesn't want to hurt another droid. He doesn't, he does not. And and it drains him. You can see it in a minute after he, after he drains the, um, the information out of that KX unit and drops its body to the ground when he's sharing the information about there are only 88 stormtroopers in our way, you know, make it 30% of the way before we are caught or whatever it is that he says. Yeah. Our optimal route to the data vault places only 89 stormtroopers in our path. We will make it no more than 33% of the way before we are killed. He's like leaning really heavily against the wall and like he props up his hand. It's very human. It's a like really human body language for him to he's got a forearm resting on the like door jam and he's like like slouched a little. Um he did not like that. He didn't like doing that. And no. and Cassian made him do it and Cassian says you know what to do. He doesn't have to tell him because obviously this is something they've done before. And K2SO is right. like tired of it. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing we should mention before we stop 
you know, going to bat for K2SO, our favorite droid, <laughs> is that it's it's definitely emphasized here that K2 is an individual, like, through his body language. Yes. Like, he's not like the other KX units, and we can see that just in the way that he walks. Yes. There's that quick scene where we see the one KX unit coming towards them, and then we cut back and see K2. The other unit walks with this smoothness of purpose. Uh, and K2 kind of has a, like, like a dop, 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 dop. I don't know how else to say <laughs> it, but he's got kind of a gait that yeah. uh, is a lot more plodding and, and it much more mechanical looking, actually. Uh, that is, it's fascinating that they would point out that difference to us and then have have us have that moment where we have to confront that part of k2's job in this mission is to murder one of his own essentially yes um it's it's super weird and like if this were and see this is another thing this is classic star wars right the droid interfaces with something and gets information uh but if it were r2d2 he would just plug into the wall and get some information it wouldn't be a thing like it's not this like this moment that gives us pause it's just a computer talking to a computer right this is a person we know and like doing something terrible and we're forced to confront that idea because i don't know maybe because of how they're shaped but also because of how he talks and acts uh it's it's strange how right. much it stands out and doesn't seem like it's simultaneously a callback and not classic Star Wars at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, because the KX units are really humanoid. And the other humanoid droids we see, like uh, like C-3PO, don't do things like this. Um, yeah, and somehow that, like, that human shape that they take um, and the, like, the, the humanity in the shape of his face and his eyes and the way they light up and the sarcasm that he's been able to exhibit and the personality we know he has makes it feel really invasive and, like, dangerous. Like, and and this is, I guess, where K2SO connects with Cassian here. As we know that Cassian has done some horrible things. Uh, he says it himself. He's done terrible things for the Rebellion. And we watched him kill a man, shoot a man in the back at the beginning of this movie. It's a very similar action here, even to the point where the KX unit that, that K2 is, is taking information from is, it's like K2 has stabbed him in the back, right? Or the back of the head, but still in the back. It's, it's a, an echo of Cassian shooting Tivik at the beginning of this movie. Wow. Yeah, I, know. I never <laughs> thought about that visual parallel, but... Yeah. But they're the same because Cassian program reprogrammed K2, gave him a mind of his own and gave him a, you know, the ability to make his own choices. And we established last episode, or we, we, we decided last episode that when Cassian says K2 has to come with, what Cassian really means is you can make this choice to come with or not. And K2 says, well, I'm gonna <laughs> because Cassian is going, therefore I have to because right. Cassian follows or because K2 follows Cassian. Yeah. Um, so if K2 follows Cassian, this action that he's doing that Cassian says, you know, you have to, you know what to do. It's hurting something, somebody who looks like you and taking what you need because you have to, because the cause is more important than your humanity. And, you know, now that I think about it, Cassian reacts the same way to shooting a fellow rebel in the back. Like, it sucks. 
It sucks. He does it because he has to. Exactly. He grimaces really bad. He's got this look on his face after he shoots Tivik that is, like, devastating. We talk about that way back in episode two or three or something. <laughs> yeah, um, but he's conflicted. He's very conflicted. And he frowns and he grimaces and then he, but then he straightens up and he gets the heck out of there because he knows what he has to do. Right. And that's, that's K2. <laughs> Let's move on to another fun Star Wars, um, another fun Star Wars, uh, like Easter egg, like parallel. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, just, just really quick. Um, while while we're in, cutting between all of these scenes and we see our our boys planting their explosives and doing combat rolls and and uh, and stealth kills, um, we get a scene which I adore of a couple of stormtroopers walking next to each other and the one one guy says to the other guy like oh i hear you know did you hear the t-15s are obsolete and the it's other about time the other one's like oh it's about time right i love that i i i've said it before and i'll say it again stormtroopers just being guys like stormtroopers just being dudes talking to each other about guy stuff is so funny to me talking about guy stuff <laughs> doing the thing in the mandalorian where they're just sitting there you know talking and and sitting on their speeders sideways and stuff and things like that are so funny to me but this one is particularly funny because they talk about the t-15s so the t-15s are obsolete and they're like oh it's about time when if you watch this movie back to back with a new hope there is a scene in a new hope um, where when Ben Kenobi, old Ben, is sneaking around doing his thing, um, where you hear two stormtroopers talking about the new T sixteens. You seen that new B T sixteen? Yeah, some tough guy was telling me about it. What was that? What was that? <laughs> Probably just another drill. <laughs> <laughs> and they they specifically talk about um about the you know the the t-16 i don't even know what the 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 t-16s well, are is it a droid is it a ship i I've don't got, i've got a theory a weapon? <laughs> um but yeah I, the t-16 or the t-15 could be anything but we do know about one other thing called a t-16 Ooh. Uh, and and that's luke's short range like speeder hopper thing uh, that he used to bullseye womp rats in back in Beggar's Canyon. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's like a speeder of some kind. I would like to imagine that it's kind of a uh, like a, a consumer speeder. So like a like a car almost. Like they're talking about guy stuff. It's just like cars. <laughs> like the T-15, they're not going to support it anymore. Well, it's about time. It's been declared obsolete. Luke somehow owns a T-16. Sure. I'm assuming that it's like about the about the same thing. Yeah. Like, ah, fine. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's assume that. Yeah. Star Wars Easter egg. Same thing with uh, with I've got a bad feeling about this and all the other fun, you know, odds telling and and Wilhelm screams and all of that that Star Wars just includes. This movie does a really good job of of including so many of them, but subverting them at the same time. Like yeah. with the with no opening crawl, but but with the theme song sounding similar, and you know things that things that they do and 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 songs that they play, themes that they play that that are throwbacks to Star Wars, but that don't um, don't exactly match up to you know the the saga films, and yeah, it's it, because Rogue One Rogue One has its own identity without sacrificing that Star Wars flavor. 
Exactly. And I think I think that's what makes it such an effective Star Wars adventure. Uh, Alice, you and I are both fans of a podcast uh, called Rogue Fun, a podcast story. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> called uh, The Campaign Podcast. Yes, love The Campaign uh, Podcast. And The Campaign Podcast is uh, a series of long form D&D style tabletop role playing game campaigns. And their first campaign is a Star Wars campaign. Uh, which is funny. It started a long time before Rogue One came out. But it's about but, stealing the Death Star plans. Yeah, it's about a, a group that has stolen the Death Star plans. Yes. Um, when we catch up with them. And what's great about Campaign is that they take that Star Wars flavor, you know, uh, stealing Stormtrooper uniforms, uh, getting captured on purpose. Star Wipes. Uh, <laughs> Star Wipes, uh, all the Lucas Wipes. Um, you know, things like that that you expect to see, expect to see in a Star Wars, right? Uh, recurring villains who are a big deal, uh, losing a hand in a fight. Spoiler oh, alert. Oh, yes. Um, and, and those little moments of Star Wars uh, kind of iconography, uh, ideas that are connected to Star Wars, make it feel like a Star Wars experience. It's not just four goofballs in a ship uh, messing around in a galaxy that happens to have Star Wars names. It feels Star Warsy because it contains Star Wars things beyond the aesthetic. It contains Star Wars ideas and themes and, yes, moments that we've come to expect from a Star Wars story. What makes Rogue One a Star Wars story and not a Vietnam movie in space. It's right. basically these things. Um, and I feel like that's what ties it all together and makes it stand out as a uniquely Star Wars thing that is also unique in Star Wars. Uh, and I love it for that. Yes. Gosh, I love Star Wars. I, I love Star Wars and I love Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Ding, dang. Do I love Rogue One, a Star Wars? Ding dang. Maybe we should start a podcast about it. Oh okay. wait, here we are. <laughs> Just a couple more, a couple more things before we wrap up. We're very nearly there. Um, we cut back to Krennic at least once in this uh, in this very quick little little montage of scenes. Um, I just really like um, like Krennic just being absolutely at his wits end, just so so angry, just. Yeah, get started. You know, he's just like so, so mad that he has to do any of this. Um, and he says that he says, get started. Um, uh, very close kind of to the to the end of the segment here. Um, when we get several characters saying the word ready, we get ready, ready. M Melshi says it a couple times. Ready, ready. Standing by. Um, we we've got throughout this whole segment. People say the word ready. And it's, it kind of goes along with what we were saying about how this, like, very quick jump between scenes and the kind of, like, tension building is getting us ready, 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 ready for everything to pop off. Ready. 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 Standing by. Get started. Ready, 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 and get started. And get right? started. Like, it's mm -hmm. funny how, how all of these things have kind of uh, coalesced into this moment, uh, this explosive moment that will set this whole scene 
in motion. Exactly. It's, it's like we've watched dominoes being set up for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and somebody's about to flick the first one op- over, and that person is Melshi. Um, and I, I love the shot from uh, kind of the command bridge of Scarif Tower. When that first uh, with explosion, the explosions going yeah, off. oh, it's so good. It's... The explosions are quiet because they're far away, right. and it's almost like, um, did that, did that just happen? Are we imagine it... like, is this is real? It still happening? Are there, are there more over there? What, yes. what is this? And all because Melshi hit the button when our dear, sweet, beautiful, handsome man Cassie Nandor gets to say one of the one of the sexiest lines in this in this whole movie. He really he really did this for us, I think. When he gets to say right into his little com link and he goes, Light it up. Light it up. Boy, that's that's hot. <laughs> that's so hot. That's you good know- stuff. It's it's a it's a great line and a great moment and a great way to end this segment. So uh, I think that's it, at least for this episode. Yeah, I mean, you know, Alice, this was a great segment of this amazing film. And, you know, when we started this, I was thinking, you know, there's so much action. There's not a lot of character development. There's not a lot of... Uh, subtext here it's all text and it's all so fast that we wouldn't have anything to talk about but here we are at the end of another kind of longer (laughs) episode actually i know i know it's really i don't know what it is about this movie that gets us talking but there's so many layers and so much happening uh that you know that's why we that's why we started the podcast isn't it (laughs) (laughs) um and so that's it um i guess uh so for next time for next month, we're going to go from uh, Cassie and Ander says uh, light him up. And that's at uh, 133. Uh, we've seen some explosions. We mentioned that. Um, the next cutoff point where we're going to stop uh, after next episode is at 141. Um, when the rebel fleet comes and Antok Merrick, my husband, my sweet boy, um, hits the ATAT in the side of the neck with his X-wing, and he That's the and moment. he flashes that beautiful smile. So right as we see Antok Merrick's smile is the end of the next segment. Yes, and okay. that 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 to me represents a big turning point in the battle. Um, it's a good, solid, almost ten minute segment of mostly fighting, um, and we'll uh, we'll cover that for the month of July, which uh, coincidentally is my birthday month. Hey, happy so, uh, ahead of time birthday, and I'm sure I'll uh, congratulate you next month as well. Thank you. I'm just so um, excited to talk about Antoc Merrick for a second on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, Alice, despite the fact that the conversation about Rogue One has ended here, uh, we will be online to continue that conversation. Absolutely. The conversation, as always, continues on the internet. We are always on Twitter. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Rogue Fun Pod, and you can find us specifically. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at Alice White THP for those happy places, which is our other podcast that we do. Yeah, it's about uh, theme parks, rides, and attractions, and how they can be compared to and treated like literature. Um, I'm Buddy Duquesne. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Remember that Duquesne is spelled. D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. 
Yes. Uh, and, you know, Alice, if people want to have more conversations with us, they could always join our Discord server. Absolutely. Discord is a awesome little program that lets us have conversations that are longer than just like 280 characters at a time. Uh, we've got whole channels where we talk about Star Wars and theme parks and movies and TV and uh, even like a nice safe place to talk about things that are that are happening in the world that we need support about. And, uh, you know, we have a very supportive and loving community on Discord. So if you want to join us there, you can find, you know, send us a message on Twitter or you can email me at um, alicewhitepodcast at gmail.com and we'll send you a link. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you like the show and you want to show your support for the show, you can always find us on Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash those happy places is actually the uh, Patreon page for those happy podcasts, uh, which includes this show, Those Happy Places, Giving the Gift of Murder, uh, <laughs> and The Joust, which was our month long audio drama exper experiment thing. Um, you know, there's actually going to be another show on there soon, too. Ooh. So if you like what we do uh, and you want to support that, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash those happy places where you can support us on all levels of monetary compensation. Yes. Uh, and one of those uh, levels, if you join us at the D ticket level, you can have your name read on the show, which ooh. we will do right now because our dear, dear, dear friends, Awesome Chaudhry and Charles Gustine are D ticket level supporters who uh, have really been absolute rocks in our community, um, really uh, expanding our conversations that we have online and challenging us to uh, to further discussions on all sorts of wonderful topics. And uh, in, in addition to being amazing supporters of the show. Uh, yes. So if you want to have your name read out loud, just like our friends Charles and Aslam, which thank you, gentlemen, so, so much. You are uh, gentlemen and scholars. Absolutely. If you uh, like that and you want uh, to be read aloud alongside those is very esteemed gentlemen, uh, you can join us on, on Patreon. But if you can't support the show monetarily, that's okay. Go ahead and spread the word to your friends, to your followers, to your, to your parents, to your uh, random people that you meet on the street. Uh, yes. Go tell everybody about the show, and um, we just, gosh, we've loved all of the support and all of the, the tweets and and mentions, and everybody's just so awesome. Yes, I am so proud to be part of this show and to be your co-host on it. Uh, I was just thinking to myself, uh, it is so cool to be a Star Wars podcaster, uh, and here we are, both of us, Star Wars podcasters. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I just think that's kind of exciting. Uh, yeah. You are my best friend and favorite co-host. You're my best friend and my favorite co-host. This is uh, I, I'm so proud of the the podcasts and the communities that we've built, and uh, I can't wait for more. So um, I guess uh, we'll see you next month. Hey, Alice. Rogue fun, pulling away. May the force be with us. <laughs> <laughs>